Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Human Rights, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nicholas Becklin. I'm a human rights practitioner currently on a break as a visiting scholar at Yale Law School and the host of this channel. Today, I have the great pleasure of interviewing Sherry Tadros, who's uh, the representative of Amnesty International at the UN and the deputy director for advocacy for the organization. Uh, she's just published a book, Taking Sides, a very personal memoir about her life and career as a Middle East expert, a TV journalist, a war correspondent, and a prominent human rights advocate. Sherin, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Nicholas. Sherin, you've written a really amazing book uh, about your life, your career, the obstacles that you had to overcome, your seemingly ever-present inner doubts, the people you've met in the most difficult situation. And it is a book in which you're not afraid to show a lot of vulnerability. But we'll get back to that. I want to start from where you are now. You're the head of the UN Advocacy for Amnesty International. You're the deputy director for the advocacy operation. You lead a team of highly specialized advocates in New York, Geneva, and um, many capitals around the world. You spend a large chunk of your time meeting with high-level diplomats, political leaders from around the world. You really are at the sharp edge of all the investigative and campaigning work that Amnesty does. For listeners who are not necessarily familiar with how the UN works or what Amnesty does, can you tell us a bit about your current role and where does UN advocacy and advocacy in general fit with Amnesty's work? Sure. Um, so for the last six years, actually, I've been I've been at this job. So based in New York at the United Nations. In my office, we have um, two senior advocates, but then we also have advocates that live in Geneva. So they take care of the Human Rights Council. Um, and also in London and Berlin. And together, I guess, you know, 
in a nutshell, we lobby states and try and make sure that human rights are protected um, and promoted around the world. And what that really means is um, trying to lobby states and the representatives that we have access to, which are often decision makers, to abide by international law. We take the research that is painstakingly done by our colleagues in, at Amnesty, and we put that research right in front of these decision makers. And every so often, we get an opportunity to lobby them directly and to try and influence a, a text of a resolution, um, a decision being made. We sometimes just work to make sure that things don't get worse. I think that's a big part, unfortunately, of our job that is not so glamorous and certainly not very visible. But there's such a huge attack right now on what we call international norms. Um, you know, it's 75 years now this year since the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And yet we are seeing such a backslide in terms of leaders around the world really understanding that these are basic rights, that these are indivisible. Um, and a lot of our job is trying to hold that line and remind states and states, you know, you're probably thinking of certain ones in your in your mind, be it China or Russia. But there are others, too, that we have to remind um, on a daily basis what those rights are, why they are important to people's peace and security and, and their happiness in life um, and the obligations that states and leaders have to protect them and to abide by them. You, I love how you make it seem so straightforward and easy, but your book actually tells a very different story. Um, it talks about the difficulty of bringing attention to uh, situations of conflict, situation of human rights violations, a situation of structural injustices, and how difficult it is to get sustained attention over over time and when the crisis seems to be over, but that the scars and the impacts of what has happened uh, remains deeply um, into people's life. Is Amnesty and human rights organization in general, are these organizations generally having a long-term um, objectives and, and strategy or are you being forced in a way to follow what captures international diplomacy uh, from week to week and from month to month? Yeah, I mean, it, it's a mixture of both, right? I think that as advocates, uh, you know, working for NGOs in the space in New York or, or Geneva, we need to have those long-term goals. We need to have sort of almost thematic priorities, if you like, to like the ones that I mentioned about maintaining a line, maintaining international standards. Um, but then we have to be quite reactive as well because the, the UN is this huge ship, right? And to try and sort of steer it, um, you know, using part of our one toe on one foot from afar is very difficult. So, you know, I think strategy-wise, there needs to be that long-term vision that we are all working towards about what kind of just societies we want to live in and what we're trying to create and how the UN should work for the people. 
And then there's also has to be that sort of short term strategy of being quite nimble in advocacy to respond to crises, to see what's on the agenda and to move with it. And I think, you know, one one incident or one situation I, I talk about in the book is Syria in 2016 and the the siege of Aleppo and, you know, the absolutely atrocious um, situation that we were seeing unfolding there. And, you know, together with the coverage from excellent journalism that was being done on what was going on in Aleppo and some member states that were truly moved by what was going on and wanted to do something about it, we were able collectively to adopt a resolution creating the first accountability mechanism that um, that Syria still has today and that documents, preserves and prepares case files so that there is, you know, some accountability and justice um, for for what's happening in, in Syria, what continues to happen today as we speak in Syria. And so, you know, it's, it's that sort of long term thinking of what needs to be done, combined with being flexible enough to take opportunities, be them happening around the world, but also in terms of momentum at the UN, that that makes, I think, for successful advocacy in the space. Is this ability to um, stay engaged on, on deep and long issues and conflict and quest for justice and redress and accountability, is it what made you shift from journalism to human rights work in the first place? I think in a nutshell, yes. And I think that you almost get that from the first, the prologue, right, to the book, where I'm asked in this interview, you know, you're, you're, you're working for Sky News, you're the Middle East correspondent, didn't you just win two RTS awards? You know, why do you want to quit this job? And I answer, you know, by saying very, just sort of what came into my head in that moment, which is that my job ends at the wrong place. And, and, it, and it was really a feeling inside of me that, you know, in the process of making change, there are different links in that chain, different roles that need to be played. And journalists play an incredibly important role in exposing and to some extent documenting what is going on and, and the situations going on. But at one point in my life, I realized that what I wanted to do was move from exposing injustice to fighting injustice. I wanted it to be my mandate, my role to follow up and not leave a conflict until something is done, policy is changed. And that is not the mandate of journalism. And while, whereas I think a lot of journalists do make change, that is not their primary goal and it can't be their primary goal. And, and, and for me, I think there was a realization over time, certainly not just one aha moment, but, but over time, that fulfillment for me was not necessarily the, the going to the conflicts and reporting on what's going on, but on making sure that that refugee I spoke to on the Turkish-Syrian border, there was some justice for them. There was somewhere. It was my job to make sure that policies change so that these refugees can go home or find a home or live in dignity. Um, and to not do that felt like I was just as unaccountable as the person who had blown up their house. And um, I found it very difficult for me to live with myself. Well, this is a theme that comes uh, very often through your book, um, that you are... You, you feel inadequate to, to, to the task. 
the, the, the book often tells a story of you feeling a bit of an outsider of someone who doesn't really fit or belong uh, the place where they, they're working. In your book, you tell about an episode earlier in your career when you were working as an assistant at ITV, I think, and you share with someone more senior than you that you want to become a TV journalist. And you're told, I quote from your book, you're far too exotic for British television. Look at you, and your name is Sharon Tadros, for God's sake. I would stick to jobs behind the camera. Have you considered becoming a local fixer or a translator? Tell us about this episode and how it made you feel and what, what you made of it. Yeah, it was it was really tough. It's almost hard to imagine given, you know, I think we have it's certainly progressed on television news in the UK, at least, um, you know, on, on sort of accepting different types of people and women on, on TV. I think back then, and we're talking about, you know, the 90s and the early 2000s, it was just a complete joke to them that someone like me who, you know, to quote um, the, the person at the BBC who interviewed me for my very first internship, you know, you have an accent, you roll your R's, she said to me, you know, Egypt's a wonderful place, but you know, this is, you're Egyptian, you're not British. And for me, it was just, it, it, I just didn't understand it. I was born in London, I grew up in London. I, For me, I thought I had a British accent. And there I was losing out on a job for an accent I never knew I had. And there I was again, losing out at ITV um, to be considered anything more than someone who's sort of a runner going up and down the stairs, grabbing guests um, because of nothing else, not because of, you know, the, he didn't think I had the journalistic, you know, um, impulse or skills, but just because of, you know, the fact that I was originally Egyptian because my name is Shireen and not, you know, Emma. And, uh, and, it, and, and it, was, it was a really stark moment of, you know what, as an immigrant growing up, we want you to do just well enough so that you can be legitimate in this society, but don't do too well, you know, st stick to your lane. And and that was a really, it was a tough message. Um, and um, it, it was hard to recover from because I think for many years later, and I, and I then talk about my very first time I was on TV for Al Jazeera English in Lebanon. I remember thinking back at that moment as I'm sort of getting ready to go on TV going, I mean, what if they had a point, all of those people? There's the reason why people like me don't go on TV. They're going to realize my accent. They're going to think I look too dark, too, my hair is too dark, my eyes are too dark. Um, and and, and it, was, it was supremely unjust. It was supremely unjust. And part of me writing the story um, and why I felt so strongly about having my voice heard in this book um, is because I, I want other people who experience the same to know that they, they weren't alone. But in, in another approach, though, I did make it. I did make it. And I made it to Sky News, um, a Murdoch, you know, organization and and somewhere where, you know, my politics and who I what I looked like and so on didn't necessarily fit in. But they gave me a chance at, at Sky. And, you know, I ended my journalism career with that kind of legitimacy that I had sought so, you know, so passionately um, at the beginning of my of my journalism. So let, let's talk about your your career in journalism, which um, uh, really, um, I think, inspired a lot of your 
the trajectory of your of your career. Um, you you said I think in your book that you were tired of reporting and moving on, and you wanted your job to do something about the the suffering that you witnessed and documented as a as a journalist. But it was not a very straightforward path, as we heard to join the ranks of journalism and later war correspondence. Um, tell us a little bit about your your family. Uh, you're Egyptian. Your parents are Egyptian. Your father moved from um, uh, your mother moved from Egypt to to London, um, and initially you were sort of a Middle East experts and it's really 9-11 that made you write suddenly um, Arab speaking experts uh, very much in in demand. Tell us about the how you 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 broke into uh, journalism and and how you ended up at Al Jazeera when it was uh, launched in 1996 I think. Sure. Yes, the Arabic channel in in ninety six, the the English channel um, later than that. But yeah, I I think that you know you know you you said it very well. You know, in, in terms of the story of my parents were was one of struggle as well. Not not financial struggle in Egypt, but certainly a struggle against a political system that they no longer wanted to work and live under. So for my father, he left because. Um, he didn't want to serve in the military and there was conscription in Egypt. Um, so he he left the country and he came to the UK and he had very little funds and, you know, spoke a little bit of English, but not perfectly. And he built himself up um, in, in the UK really on his own. And then his, my mother joined him a few years into, um, you know, as he was trying to build his career and, and together, you know, they, they went from sort of, you know, driving taxis in London to owning a fish and chip shop and having, you know, racist and drunk, uh, British, uh, um, punters coming along and, and throwing, you know, greasy chips in their face and telling them to go back home. Um, and then, you know, just you know, having a breakthrough for my father and realizing that there was a link that he could play between um, the Middle East and, and Europe um, in terms of, you know, the, the vegetable market. And he, he then began to sort of build a, an incredibly successful business. And um, by the time I was born, my father had, you know, managed to raise enough funds to have, you know, a very comfortable house for us in, in an affluent neighborhood in, in, in St. John's Wood in London. Um, and I certainly, I, you know, I miss the, the beginning years of that struggle, but it is very much imprinted on my parents and how, and how they taught me and how I grew up. Um, so I grew up by what I considered quite privileged in, in this beautiful house in, in London, surrounded by shrubs and, and beautiful garden and, and very, very safe and protected. And for you know, 25 years, I lived in the same house. I went to university about you know, five minutes down the road, my school, my primary school was in walking distance, distance, our church was 10 minutes drive away that, you know, my life consisted in this small radius of, of beautifully pruned London uh, streets. And it was a very different kind of life um, to, to, I think, what people might think of as someone who then chooses to go to war zones um, and fight for injustice. But I think that there was always this 
there was always this sense of injustice inside of me, not just because of, you know, the racism I could see around me in the UK at that time and what I could see, you know, had, had, had been my parents' struggle, but, but also because I would go back to Egypt very often. You know, my, my parents were the kind that, you know, they would pick us up from school on the last day of summer and take us to the airport. And then we'd be in Egypt the entire time until we, you know, the day before school started. So I, I, I did grow up a lot of the, you know, a, a, having a lot of exposure to, to Egypt, to Cairo, to, um, to Alexandria, to, to the poverty, to the injustice, to the corruption. And it's something that I clocked very early on, um, the difference between, you know, us and them and the air-conditioned car I was in and the people on the streets who were begging. Um, and, I, and I write quite vividly about that in, at the beginning of the book uh, because it's important. Um, it, it, it created the sense of inequality and injustice being something that irked me and was wrong in me ver- very early on. Um, and, and although I think we often look back on our lives and we look at our careers and we think a lot of it was opportunistic and even accidental. I think a lot of people see, see their jobs, even, you know, why are you in what you're doing now as sort of, you know, a series of, of opportunities. Um, and, I, and I really saw my journalism career a bit like that, too. I was a Middle East expert. I, I fell into this. It was 9-11. But actually, I, I trace it back to these trips to Cairo. I trace it back to the woman shouting at my parents from across the, uh, you know, across the road, telling them to go back home. I, I trace that sense of injustice and, and the way in which it affected me to the decisions I then took that led me to these war zones and now, you know, leads me to the United Nations. Um, I don't think any of it was accidental. And the, the book really helped me unpack that because I think for a long time before I started writing, I really did see it as this, you know, why did I spend 25 years in this beautiful place and then not spending a single night away from home and then suddenly decided, oh, wait, I'm going to go to Doha and join Al Jazeera English and, and, and fly to Lebanon and Syria and, and become a war correspondent. You know, what, what, a, what a complete accident. And, and no, it wasn't an accident. These were, these were choices born out of something inside of me. And, and, and that's really the message that I try and you know and hope that people get and, and it makes them look within themselves at as to you know what is it that drives them are they doing the right job are they are they doing something just because you know it's it's a present to them and in, in front of them or are they are they really sort of thinking about their role in creating the kind of society that they want to live in um, and in particular if you notice the injustice and inequality around you, I think the, the book is trying to tell you that there is something that you can do about it. And I'm not saying quit your job and become a human rights activist, but I'm saying, you know, respond to that feeling inside of you that something is wrong here. Um, and whatever you choose to do, whether it's a letter to your MP or whether it's changing the HR policy on maternity at your organization, whatever it is, make a difference. Because if, if enough of us care, then we really can make a difference. And I, I, I really can, I, I think that my entire career has shown that. I was not the archetype um, journalist or the archetype human rights activist that you would think of the way I grew up. But 
you know, what I probably share with, with those people, with journalists and with other activists is, is that sense of injustice and a feeling that I have a role in addressing it. And I think your book really speaks to your love of journalism for its ability to expose the wrongdoing and to record it and to make it um, undeniable. Uh, I think you, you quote your friend and, and fellow correspondent, Rula Amin, about saying that something to that effect that, you know, when something bad happens, you know, if you manage to film it, if you manage to document it, at least, you know, this is this won't be denied. And, and this is the first step um, uh, to, to justice. Yeah. Yeah, I think she said her words were, nobody can ever say it didn't happen. And I think, you know, justice comes in different forms, especially when you're talking to victims and survivors. And often what you hear is an acknowledgement that this happened to me is, is an important component of what they see as justice. And, and journalists absolutely hold, hold that record. So let, let's uh, um, backtrack a little bit. You, you really um, uh, fall in love with journalism. I think you tell an anecdote where you're in a BBC studio as, as a as an expert advising on on um, uh, Middle Eastern issues, and you look around you in that big BBC sort of newsroom, um, and you you say you realize that. The news did not just happen, it was made. And that really was a pivotal moment for you to, to want to, to join this and, and try to um, make news. Exactly. And, you know, I can honestly say that before then I had, um, I'm just as much interest as anyone else in the news and watching TV. Um, but I think, you know, sitting there and just there was just something about the energy of the place, the pace of it. It just felt like these people were doing something. They were doing something that changes. Um, and, you know, it changes things, how they decide to cover what they decide to cover, who they have on talking about this. I mean, what an incredible opportunity and a platform. Um, so you can already see, you know, at the beginning of my story, how I looked at journalism from an activism lens, right, in terms of being able to change things and do things. Um, and it took me the, the, the next 10 years to sort of really find my place, though. So two things happened um, in, in your life um, that, that leads to this, right? The, the first one, your first big break is to be hired by Al Jazeera English when they set up. And then the second one is when you find yourself in Gaza in uh, 2009, when the, the Israel-Gaza conflict starts. Um, tell us a little bit about this, because this memory seems very seared into, into you. And I must say, as much as you show your love of journalism, you also have a lot of... Um, pretty hard words about um, war correspondence and, and the limits of, of journalism. Um, but we can talk about this uh, later. Uh, tell us, so first Al Jazeera is, is set up and then how you find yourself in, in Gaza and, and not only you find yourself, you find yourself being the only um, uh, team, English speaking TV um, uh, news reporting team uh, during during the conflict, and 
for people who don't remember that conflict, um, it was extraordinarily uh, violent. I think that over a thousand people died in, in the end. Um, tell us about this, this, this particular time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, you know, to start from the beginning, I, um, as I kind of alluded to, it was really hard to find a job in journalism. I start doing these completely odd jobs for different networks. No one is giving me a break. No one is paying me. So, you know, the reason I can do these jobs is because my parents very kindly and I'm in the privileged position of being able to take these unpaid sort of internships or traineeships, as they're calling them. And even that I had to like fight for and thank and someone else had to recommend me and so on. So I'm having this like terrible time in the UK trying to penetrate the the journalism industry. I meet with all sorts of people, um, but they all have the same thing to say about me, which is something along the lines of being exotic. Um, it's hard enough being a woman, I think, as well. Like, uh, And then being sort of an immigrant as well um, was just a little bit too much, certainly for anything on screen. Um, so I'm in, this, I'm in this bind. I then um, find through a friend that... Um, there's a 24-hour news station, pan-Arab, called Al Arabiya, and they had, you know, they had had a big presence in London, and then had just sort of completely downsized, leaving what was in a massive studio um, complex into what is essentially like four or five, you know, people who are working in this massive place, and they need someone to kind of help them out, and and you know quite administrative, really, but but there's enough opportunity. So I start working for Al Arabiya. Um, I don't enjoy it much. It's in Arabic, which I can understand and operate in, but not in such a high standard that um, I'm really getting, you know, so much out of, 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 you know, learning about the news. But I do work with really great correspondents and, and one in particular, Mohammed Shabaro, who who really taught me um, what the what, what news making consisted of. Um, and it was him who at one point mentions to me that Al Jazeera, who, you know, one of the most famous brands in the world, was launching an English language channel. Um, and I say I talk in the book about how, you know, he, he joked about about me being sort of perfect for it because I'm just Arab enough, you know, to you know, have some sort of legitimately legitimacy in this Arabic channel, but I'm also Western and, and speak English. And so I can, I can operate in it as well. So he, he's sort of encouraging me to apply and I do. And then, um, after many, many rounds and many months, um, I get a, I get a call back. They offer me the lowest position on the lowest salary of any, of anyone. And, and on account of my, um, on account of my, of my experience, because I, I couldn't even point in my CV to a single paid job at that point. So, but they give me an opportunity and it's, you know, it's, it's called a runner, <laughs> And um, yeah, and, but it was the first paid salary I got. I can't even remember how much it was. It barely covered my uh, transport to and from the studios. But it, it was, it was, it, I was so excited, and it was such a huge moment for me. And um, it was quite well before the the channel had even launched. They were still sort of doing practice runs and practicing to, to, until they went on air. So I joined probably almost a year before they went on air. Um, but by the time we had launched, I had worked my way from the runner position to almost like a, a junior producer. And um, 
eventually when the channel launched, they asked me to move to Doha, the headquarters of Al Jazeera. And, um, and from there, just, you know, I, my career just completely took off. And um, my first conflict zone was in, was in Beirut, um, in Lebanon, as um, after the 2000, it was after the 2006 war, but it, there was still a lot of um, after effects um, of the Hezbollah-Israel conflict. And I was covering those. And then, as you said, at the end of 2008, I go to Jerusalem on an assignment, which was meant to be just a month or so, so that I can cover for the Jerusalem correspondent who was away. And at this point, I'm not really on television very often or really at all. I mean, I did a few things in, in Beirut, but I, I certainly wasn't called a correspondent. So I was really just covering the, you know, any sort of small stories in the middle of the night that needed to be <laughs> that needed to be covered. Um, and then at one point, my my editor, Nick, comes up to me and he, he says, you know, how about going to Gaza? And I was like, no, I really, you know, I, I, I had gone to Gaza once before, I think just for the day. I didn't I didn't spend the night. And I just found it the most depressing, sad, lonely place, claustrophobic that I'd ever... Well, let me quote you. you. You write, I had gone to Gaza once. Just 24 hours was enough for me to decide that I never wanted to return. <laughs> yeah. How did that go? <laughs> and, and, I, and I say that with so much love for Gaza because let's, you know, let's put it on the record. I then spent a huge amount of time there and it is, you know, the, the closest place in my heart, I think, of, of anywhere in the world. But yes, at that time, you know, no one can go to Gaza and go, oh, this is so cool. Let's, let's come here on holiday. It is under siege. It is under bombardment. It has had various wars. It is, it is you know, been on the complete blockade um, from, from from the Israeli government for, for, for many years, and it is in a terrible state, and nobody can leave. So it was a, it was a difficult 24 hours. I didn't even report from there. I, I just went to see. I think it was even on a day off. And so when Nick says to me, you know, can you go into Gaza? I was like, well, oh, I don't really want to. And he goes, I'll tell you what, like, I really just need you to spend the day there because it's the U.S. elections, and they, we need to do some sort of morning piece. They, they the morning after the U.S. elections, and it was, um, you know, we were expe- we were expecting um, Obama to become president. So it's such a huge event in the U.S. that really no one cares about you in Gaza, Shireen. So that's why we're sending you. And you, you know, you just need to sort of cover the fort a little bit, and and maybe just you know pop up and say you know a little bit from what's going on with the Palestinians in Gaza. What do they think of Barack Obama? And I was like, well, I mean, I guess, I mean, okay, fine, you know, and, and he gives me these like, you know, 10 shekels. He's like, you, they have the best fish meals in Gaza. You should definitely have a fish meal in this place. I was like, okay, I'll have a fish meal. I'll go to Gaza. So there I am. And, you know, lo and behold, 24 hours in Gaza turned into, you know, three and a bit months in Gaza because that night there was an Israeli incursion while the U.S. elections were happening and and the world's attention was turned on them, um, the Israeli soldiers launched an incursion into Gaza, breaking a ceasefire and um, setting off a chain of events which led to uh, the December uh, 2008 war. Um, And at that point, it was just after Christmas that it started. I believe it's something, I mean, it may have been, in fact, the 26th of December. And what had happened is that all the correspondents that are usually sort of flown into the Gaza Strip to cover stories or whatever, 
had left to go on their Christmas holidays, their Christmas break. So everyone was gone. And then when the bombardment started, Israel and Egypt locked their crossing points. They said, nobody goes in, nobody goes out, and nothing goes in, no, no, no supplies go in, nothing comes out. So, um, you know, at that point on the 26th, um, me and my colleague who was, who was there, who was the Gaza correspondent, Ayman Mohideen, we, we then become the only English-speaking international correspondents inside of the Gaza Strip, and no one else can come in. So what, what all the networks do is they send their correspondents to report from the Israeli side of the crossing, but no one is able to get inside of Gaza except for, you know, Ayman and I who were already there and, had, who, and, and you know, to be fair to us as well, had done an incredible amount of work in the weeks prior um, explaining that things are really getting bad here and, you know, the siege was tightening, supplies were running out, and there was this sort of war talk coming, not just from the Israeli government, but also from Hamas, who were promising also, you know, continuing to launch their missiles and promising all sorts of destruction and death um, to the other side. So there was, it was, it was a, it was a really um, tense situation. So, so the war starts and, and, you know, and, and lasts, um, you know, until the, until um, unilateral ceasefire was declared about a month later, and this this is my this is my first war zone, and I'm terrified. And I spend the first few days pretty much sort of sitting by Eamon's foot, um, trying to help him coordinate and getting information for him, but absolutely refusing to go on television. And he, I mean, you know, people would ask me like, is it, you know, was Eamon trying to like hold all the television space? He like really wanted to be the only one on the ground. And I would tell them, I promise you, Eamon was begging me. He was like, I have been on TV now for 14 hours. Can I, please, can you take over for two hours while I sleep? And I was just like, please don't make me. I can't, I can't. And it was, I was just so affected by what I was seeing. And I, I knew that, you know, the moment I go on TV, everyone's going to see I'm, I'm a scared inexperienced reporter and and I and I just can't do it I can't I, I can't do what they I'm not this person they all want me to be this war correspondent um, but the, you know but, but with time with and I didn't have so much time so we're talking about with 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 days so by sort of day six or seven there was so much going on and I was seeing so much on the ground that there was sort of no choice but to go out and and, and start reporting and I described that moment and I, I described my first story. Um, and what I was seeing and documenting everything from, you know, an incident when I was in the hospital in the main hospital in Gaza and I hear this screaming and I go to where the screaming is coming from, which is just outside the huge sort of fridge area where they keep the bodies. And, you know, the chaos of, of this hospital, which had run out of all the supplies and the doctors weren't there. And there were so many people injured and so many children injured that they were literally laid outside the hospital in the car park, not even able to get into the door. And, and, and I talk about, you know, me sort of hearing this, these screams and running into, you know, the building and finding that they had accidentally put someone who was still alive into one of the fridges. And the, and the guy was just sort of banging on the door, like, get me out of here. Uh, and, you know, and there's this absolute chaotic scene of, of limbs that were that, that are sort of, you know, on the floor and a child that I try and, 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 and help because his mother is screaming, but then dies right in front of my eyes as I try and, you know, 
stop a catastrophic bleed by just putting pressure on his wound, which of course doesn't work. Um, and I just talk about like how really how useless I was. And I realized that, you know, it, what am I doing here? What I, what I, you know, what I can do is report the story and tell everyone what's going on. I can't just sit here and try and do these sort of useless, um, you know, <laughs> helping people and, and talking to them and, and, you know, telling amen figures and numbers. So, so I, I decide to, um, I decide to start, you know, actually doing my job. Um, and, and at that point I, I, I travel around the Gaza Strip and I do stories which really appeal to me. And the very first story was about this woman, a single mother, um, with these beautiful children in Gaza City. And what's incredible about this woman is that th there was no dramatic story behind this. So I just told you all this dramatic stuff happening. But this woman actually, you know, she hadn't, she didn't know anyone who had been killed yet in the war. Um, her house was still standing. The fact that she had a house was a big deal in Gaza. Um, so, so, you know, it was there was something in me that was thinking, is this the right story to do? You know what? What? But something really appealed to me about this woman, um, and and as I'm sort of interviewing her and she's speaking to me, I realize you know how human she is and how how much I am connecting to her, how much she reminds me of my own mother and the things that she's saying about her children reminds me of how my mother tried to protect me um, growing up. And, um, and I start really sort of doing these stories that are very much about humanizing Palestinians. And given the fact that Israel had really spent a lot of time dehumanizing Palestinians in Gaza in order to justify their policy of, of siege and bombardment and so on. Um, that, that seemed sort of the best thing to do for me, and, and it, it resonated. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And you, you, you seem to think that one of the contribution that you and, and your colleagues at Al Jazeera made over this conflict was to change the way that it was framed, right? You, you write that the, for decades, Israel had successfully influenced much of the terminology the English language media used to describe the conflict, dominating the narrative, trying to advance the idea that their occupation of the Palestinians is both legal and necessary. Mm -hmm. that, that is something that you wanted to change with your reporting. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, at that point, certainly Eamon was a lot more sophisticated than me in how he was thinking about how, you know, this this dehumanization happens. I think for me, it's it's actually when I went to the UN that I realized, um, you know, genuinely how this language that Israel uses to describe and justify what it does in terms of the occupation and the blockade, you know, how effective it is and how it's used in international law. And, um, but, you know, at the time, I, I think that what I was really just trying to do was have people connect with Palestinians in Gaza in a way that had never really 
happened or happened successfully before. Um, and I still don't know if, 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 if it was successful, but I, I, that, that was what I was trying to do. I, I, was, I was trying to bring human stories. Um, there was this impression that Gaza was a territory full of, you know, 1.8 million terrorists. <laughs> and, you know, what they were doing every day of their lives, they'd wake up, have breakfast and launch a missile or some sort of, you know, projectile towards Israel. And and this was absolutely not true. Most of the population of Gaza was, was very young, under 18. I mean, you know, certainly the people that I interacted with on a daily basis, within my colleagues, my the friends that I made, um, the where I went and did my um, my you know nails or when whatever the, these were all people just trying to live people who in fact were not you know favorable to Hamas neither you know, in fact blamed them for a lot of you know what was going on in the Gaza Strip at the time and and, and I wanted to bring their voices out too because you know I think you know in in, in any conflict you, you, people who are innocent should be allowed to leave they should be allowed to flee violence but in this scenario. And I can't think of, you know, many other examples of how this is allowed to happen in other places in the world. In this scenario, you have a territory which is very small, where you can drive around the entire of Gaza very easily in one day. So this tiny territory that's being completely blockaded and all the crossing points are closed by Israel and then Egypt on the other side. The sea is blockaded by warships. The sky above you is full of F-16s raining down hundreds of missiles a day. And if you want to leave because you are a civilian and this is not, you do not want to take part in this war, you are not a fighter, you want to leave and keep your family safe, you cannot leave. You are not given that basic right of life, of safety. There were no refugees and there was no refuge in Gaza. And, and you know, that that really just, it, it really struck me. I mean, I, I remember the moment sort of waking up going, where is the story of other correspondents doing stories about the refugees that they're, they're just crossing the border and telling you that, oh, we've left everything and we've just, we've just got to X place. And then the UN comes and they build tents in the area so that people can, who are going over the, the border can can you know have some refuge where are those stories they they don't exist because there are no refugees there is no border to cross there isn't there they're not being allowed to leave and that's the story i needed to tell that whoever side you are on here whatever you think you whatever you think about israel palestine and the occupation and who has rights to the land and so on there is a basic basic violation happening here to do with these people's right to flee um, and and that's what I and that's what I needed to get across. And after Gaza, um, you also uh, participate to the reporting of another momentous uh, event in, in the Middle East, which is the Arab uprising, and mostly in Egypt, but also in like in Libya and and other other places. Um, this is also, in your book, comes very clearly as a story of human beings rather than of high-level politics. Um, but you, you cover the, your Egyptian, you cover the Egyptian revolution, and you go through all the phases from the amazement at the fact that people are have the courage to stand up 
um, to the euphoria and the hope after Mubarak steps down, um, to the resignation and, and despair once uh, you realize that um, an autocratic and personalized regime like Egypt is like a, I think you write like a hydra. You cut one head and then, you know, another uh, 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 pops back uh, right, right after. And below the level of the leader, you have all these repressive institutions that that are sticky. They don't they don't disappear and vanish in in the night. What what was your what was your experience being reporting on on a country that is that is yours in a way? Yeah. Profound, right? Because I think it made the book go full circle because my sense of injustice as as we said at the start was born in Egypt on the streets where these things happened, where this corruption was born, where I witnessed it firsthand, even though my family was privileged. Even the privileged were not immune to the corruption of Hosni Mubarak and and his cronies. Um, And so to sort of be there reporting on this explosion of people who are like, enough, enough, this is wrong, and, and to be part of that, because I still do think that, I still think that Al Jazeera and other channels contributed to the feeling amongst the Egyptian population. If, and, and let's just keep it to Egypt and not even talk about Tunisia and the others. But they contributed to that feeling that this is wrong, this is corrupt, this doesn't happen in other countries, I have rights. I don't think that Hosni Mubarak's son should just take over the country because he's Hosni Mubarak's son. <clears throat> All of this kind of enlightening, awakening, as you know, as Al Jazeera called it at one point, all this awakening was as a result of years of coverage. And so I also felt part of that. I felt part of the movement that made this happen, not just going in there covering it. So I was there as an Egyptian who had witnessed it. I was there as a reporter who had tried to lift the veil of this corruption. And I, now I was there as, as a witness to you know, the, the culmination of this. So it was a profound moment for me. I insisted on going to Egypt. I pretty much did not listen to my editor and just took a flight. It took me sort of 18 hours to get there because you know all sorts of things were happening with flights to Cairo I went to Saudi Arabia first I went to Jordan first I mean it was it was quite the mess but I I knew that that you know I had to be there this was not sort of I want to be seen in Egypt because this is a big story for me this was personal this was about this was this was what brought me to this job and what why I why I my reason for being and so you know right from the start it was an incredible sort of experience to be in Tahrir Square and to see people speaking in the way that they did with sort of, yeah, just like, I mean, you have to understand that for us growing up in Egypt, you know, you said the word Hosni Mubarak and two other people would say, oh, the great leader, yes, what do you, what, what do you mean about him? You know, like, it, it, it was impossible to say a bad word about him. You were scared to mention his name. It was, And there we were in Tahrir Square with a picture of Hosni Mubarak and someone slapping it with their shoe. I mean, it was just, I, I was, my mind was blown. Like, wh- where did this come from? Um, and, you know, 
it was really incredible to also hear people talk about what they saw as injustice, having grown up in Egypt and having even cousins and relatives really try and justify the corruption, not being very convinced of what they were saying, but trying to convince themselves. And here now I'm listening to the almost the same stories, but without the justification. You know, the story about the bread line where you get to the front and, oh, suddenly there's no bread, but wait, what is 17 loaves under the table doing? Oh, that's reserved for someone else who's actually paying double for subsidized bread. You know, no, that's wrong. That's wrong. That's not just, you know, um, you know, a, a glitch in the system. That is that is corruption. That is wrong. And, and there this sort of awakening to that, not just it's wrong, but we have the power and the right to say it's wrong and do something about it. We matter as, as, as citizens of this country. That was uh, incredible for me. And, um, you know, I, I, I often feel like I can't even point to a single story I did. It's not like Gaza where I remember every story I did. And, and it, that wasn't the point of my, my Egypt uh, coverage. I, I think for me, it was, it, was, it was a lot more cerebral and it was a lot more about what was happening to people and their psyche. Um, and then, as you said, I think to have all that hope, um, and really believe in that moment when, when Hosni Mubarak stood down and also when Hosni Mubarak was then sort of brought to trial, um, to have all that hope be, be dashed was, um, was traumatic. Um, and I'm, you know, not just for me, of course, but I, for a generation. Um, it's one thing to just sort of write off the Middle East as not, you know, it never progresses and nothing will happen. It's quite another to really believe something's changed and then, for things to go so badly wrong and for us to go so badly backwards. And this backslide has absolutely happened. And when you look at what is happening in Egypt today, it is a travesty and a tragedy. And the fact that we have, you know, tens of thousands of people in prison for their political views, the fact that um, we have someone like Ala Abdel Fattah still behind bars in Egypt, that is a complete injustice. Um, and 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 it's and it's I think one of the one of the saddest things in my life. I think this is a very that I find it a very uh, sad um, uh, notes um, about him because I think you quote him in his in in the book uh, saying we we activists as for us activists we always always find a way. And today, it's not clear what the way is, uh, despite massive mobilization, despite the COP being uh, uh, held in Egypt, despite high-level pressure, um, is is still in jail. Yeah, he's still in jail, and you know, so many others still in jail, and it's still such a repressive environment. I mean, you know, Ale always talked about everyone else and not himself. You know, never his own case, always everyone else's. And so, you know, he, you know, he and 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 he's also someone who's who I who I always experienced to be just extremely positive, and that's why I wanted to start the book with his quote: "As for the activists, we always find a way." Because, you know, there is a lot of, you know, gloom in this book insofar as there is a lot of, you know, really heavy events that happen. But I, I do think still that the message is still that activism works, that eventually if all of us there or enough of us care, 
something will change. Um, but, you know, and, and I think that that's an important thing to come away from the book with. Um, otherwise, it's just despair. I mean, take this despair and take it that you cannot afford to be a bystander. But don't take it, this despair is, there's nothing for me to do. I'm going to wash my hands of it and, and you know, just continue on my, in, in my job um, doing whatever I'm doing. Um, and I hope that people get that message. It certainly comes through um, uh, in the book. You, you have to leave Egypt at some point. You write that there's a major crackdown on, on journalists and journalism, which continues to this day, and that you live in fear of arrests. Um, but you don't know what is going to happen. And um, ultimately, you leave um, Egypt Exactly. I mean, I, you know, we, we all lived in fear, you know, foreign journalists and, um, and, and, and those people, you know, who, who were working for Egyptian outlets, who, you know, in so many ways are so much more braver and, and didn't have the option that some of us did of, of sort of, you know, our, our dual nationalities and being able to leave. Um, but, but we all lived in fear and that translated as, um, having networks of sort of lawyers and and, and and signing power of attorneys and so on and having someone on speed dial checking um, in on you so that you could you know, make sure that everyone was accounted for. Um, how many times did, you know, Al, Al Jazeera's offices were ra raided so many times I, I, I lost count. Um, it was really difficult even reporting on the streets, especially as Al Jazeera, we became again persona non grata just like we were under Mubarak, and if anyone found out that you know we were Jazeera, it would be, you know, it, it was super dangerous for us. Um, and then just you know, ability to report, um, go to a press conference, zero. They would never let us um, get an interview with an official. Never happened. Get even an expert to speak to us. No, not on Jazeera. You know, I'm not going to get arrested. Um, so it, it just became almost impossible to operate there as a journalist. Um, so, so it, you know, it, 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 I didn't, I wasn't quite sure what I was doing there anymore. I, I could not, I, I can't work under these conditions as, as a journalist. And then something, you know, very personal happened to me in my life where, um, you know, I was, I was engaged to an, another journalist who was um, a journalist who was um, an American Egyptian, um, someone who was very much on that sort of line between journalism and, and activism and had equally gone through this revolution and this sort of heartbreak that happens afterwards um, to all of us with, with, with the rise of the military and, and then Abdel Fattah al-Sisi. Um, and so, you know, the, this event happens to me when I, and I write about it, not shy in the book, to talk about how um, he, he leaves me on the day that we are, I'm expecting that we're getting married. We're going to sign our marriage papers at least. Um, and he decides he doesn't want to get married. And so at that point in my life, I'm sort of left with, you know, no home because I was living with him and no, no job because I had, I had quit um, Sky News at that point so that we could move to the US together. Um, and uh, no husband and no relationship. And there, there was a real feeling, um, 
you know, of course of sadness, but also I think with time of relief, because I suddenly, no, nobody expected anything from me. I, I was this person who, as, as I said at the beginning, you know, I, I, I was not the stereotypical journalist. I had a really hard time getting into journalism. I finally made it. And so when, when that all those things, you know, came together, the idea that I was going to leave journalism and go into something else like activism, it just didn't feel like an option for me, even though I, in my heart, I knew that's what I wanted to do. But then when my fiance left me in this dramatic way, um, you know, and, 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 you know, you had sort of hundreds of people coming to this wedding and it was just, it was so public that, you know, it's almost like nobody expected anything of me except to just survive and not, you know, put, you know, my father doesn't put me in a mental asylum because of what had happened. And there was something about that sort of painful period. Working at the UN, though. Well, yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. you said that, not me. You said that. I still have to work there, so I'm just going to take that comment. Um, but yeah, I mean, there was something about like the low expectations of me at that moment, which allowed me to really just fly to London and take, you know, 24 hours to think, like, what is it that I really want to do with my life? And it was so clear to me at that point that I didn't want to try and get my job back at Sky News. I didn't want to return to Egypt. What I really wanted to do was was work for Amnesty International. I wanted to work for a human rights organization. I wanted to fight injustice. And it was just, it was crystal clear to me in a way that before he walked into that room and said, I'm sorry, we're not getting married, um, for some reason, I just, um, I wasn't brave enough. I didn't have the courage at that point to, to jump ship. Um, journalism is like this exclusive club, and you're kind of told constantly that everybody wants to be in here. Um, and uh, and, it, and it's, it's, it's a wonderful club to be in, don't get me wrong. But there is life outside of journalism, and, um, and I found it. And you, you touch about how your personal story um, and your your personal life is is deeply enmeshed in your in your professional life. And your your book is very courageous. It's very you show a lot of vulnerability. You you talk about a lot of your self doubts and, um, and and probably I would venture um, a little bit of imposter uh, syndrome. Uh, let me read you a few of the things you, 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 you write in a book. I was completely unqualified to report on a war. You call yourself a pseudo-expert. You said your award-winning reporting made no difference. And you make many admissions of how inadequate you feel throughout the book. You, you're bad with names. Uh, your mom has to help you with dating apps. Uh, you flunk your uh, first live cross on TV. Uh, you have to Google what the UNGA uh, is. What, once, once you get the job, you can't find your way. Uh, your colleagues tell you that it's important to be in the room where the decisions are made at the UN, but you can't even find the room in, in the maze of, of the UN. Um, it, how, how did you find the this vein of very honest and, and varnished um, writing in, in for the book. Did you set out to write it this way or 
Well, Did it take a life on its you own? Know, you know, at the end, Nicholas, you know me a little bit as well, um, you know, not just as a UN person and a writer, an activist, but as a person too. And as a person, I think I'm I'm quite self-deprecating, but I, I, self-deprecating in a way, in, in from a position of strength, from a position of someone who can look back and, and say, I, I, I did prove them wrong and I did make it and I have a story to tell and I will write a book and, and it will be a memoir and I will write it at 42 years old. I will not write it when I'm in my 70s. Um, so so I, I, I'm self-deprecating um, from, from the privileged position of being someone who I, I consider has, has you know, gotten to a certain point of my career where um, I'm not embarrassed about what I did wrong. And, and I, 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 you know, so part of it is, my, is, is just a personality that's coming out. Part of it is to, you know, show you that it's okay to be on TV and look so confident and sound so confident and behind the scenes be a little bit of a mess or be emotional or be empathetic or be sad or be bloated sometimes or, or, or have like serious, you know, issues with how your hair looks that morning. Like the, all these things that they are okay. But I, I, you know, very early on, I wrote, so very early on, like five years ago now, I wrote, um, the first chapter of this book, and I and I gave it to my friend Ayman Mohideen to read through, and he reads through it, and he texts me, and he goes, "Meet me in this coffee shop." We were in New York at the time, so I go meet him at this coffee shop, and he goes, "Yeah, no, this isn't going to work," <laughs> and he goes to me. There's, there's a reason why I haven't written a memoir. And I was like, why, why is it that you haven't written a memoir? He's, you know, he's doing so well in his career. He's like, I am not prepared to go to the depths and to be that kind, that sort of that level of honesty. I'm not prepared to share that with the entire world. I'm, that's just not me. So if you're going to do this, get to that level of depth. Otherwise, just don't do it. And it completely changed the way that I, I thought and wrote. I wrote this book without thinking how it's going to be consumed by people I'm speaking about or are people going to like me. Um, And that's why I'll be honest with you. And when I was given sort of the final edit, and this is a point where I can't really change anything, it was just sort of giving it to me as saying, you know, here's the final edit, Shireen. I read it back and I was in tears. I, I suddenly thought, oh "My God, I, I, I don't." I like, like you just said, Nicholas. I come across as <laughs> like someone who just have no idea what you're doing, or you, the people won't like me, whatever. And it was the first time that I actually looked at my book and thought, "How are people going to see me and judge me?" Um, because during the process of writing, I think you really have to genuinely have to take that out of your head. You have, to, you know, in order to be in order to be really honest and truthful. You can't think about how people are going to, you know, receive it and wanting to appear a certain way. So, the book is just really honest. It's it's really raw, and um, like everything else in my life, I feel take it and read it, and I hope that you get something out of it. But you know, you whatever you think of the book, you can't say that I didn't sort of tell you everything that I hid things. Um, it, it really is. Um, a no-holds-barred, transparent look at my life. And that's probably why it works so well. Uh, I mean, I, I want to stress that this is not just about you feeling inadequate. There's a lot there that reflects a very successful and distinguished career and also a lot of issues on which you had an impact, whether it was the 
um, double I double M on on Syria, whether it was the Rohingya crisis or whether it's your day to day work. I think that there's a lot there also for people to um, uh, take comfort that you know change is is possible and 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 the, the thirst for justice um, uh, just uh, never dried up. You're also very generous with your friends and, and people that you meet um, that give you advice from anything from how to appear on TV to uh, how to fake it in a, in a meeting uh, with, uh, with diplomats. Uh, but the, the, the book you really dedicates in your acknowledgments at the end to the incredible women in your life. And you write, thank you for providing Sorry, thank you for proving that it was never about being fearless, but about being determined. And that's something that really comes through the book. I'm so glad it does because, you know, that's something that all these women taught me. Um, So many of our stories, you know, if you watch a Netflix series and you watch this sort of stereotype television war correspondent that's female, we're always, you know, at best, you know, promiscuous, at worst, heartless. Um, we don't have any fear. We are, you know, we love skydiving on our time off. Um, you know, there's, there's this stereotype of us. And, you know, again, this is what really, what, what I really wanted to show in this, um, in this book is that, you know, that was not my experience and it's not the experience of, of the female journalists that I know and love and admire. Um, highly complex people and we, we, you know, we have empathy and, um, you know, it's not about not having any sort of inhibitions and just going in blindly to war zones. Um, it's about looking at these war zones and thinking, what is more important um, you know, right now. And it's, it's, it's about realizing it's a sort of the value of going in and covering these stories. So it's not a thrill seeking exercise for, for us. It is a determination to tell the truth and have it documented. Before we wrap up, I want to ask you about your current role at, at Amnesty. We've seen an enormous rallying around the Ukraine uh, conflict. Um, with suddenly a lot of talk and mobilization over things like crimes against humanity, um, uh, war crimes, uh, even uh, uh, setting up justice mechanisms for after the conflict, um, but human rights, sexual violence, all, all sort of things. You've seen a lot of conflicts that did not get that type of mobilization do you think that the tide has, has turned? Does it apply to other conflicts and other places of the world? And if it doesn't, what, what does it say about the structure of international relations, the world order and the UN? Yeah, I, I, I was pretty vocal at the, quite close to the start of, of the war that the double standards we were seeing were remarkable. And it was difficult at that time because 
it was so it was so egregious it was so scary it was so horrible what was going on so it was hard you know as human rights advocates to sort of stand up and go wait hold on this this happens in other places too why are you so concerned about ukraine because you know it, it really was a you know a horrible thing to watch um, but quite early on i was sort of making the point yes of course this is this is terrible um and i'm not saying let's lower the bar to how we look at other conflicts. What I'm saying is, if Ukraine is going to set the bar for international action, can we please keep it up there for every other conflict? And that's the sort of nuance that people weren't getting from those of us who were crying, you know, this is hypocritical. Um, it wasn't that, you know, we should just treat everything how we treat, you know, Ethiopia and, and what's going on there. It's that every conflict that violates international law needs to be elevated in this way. I think what happened with Ukraine was that because it was such a, an egregious violation of the charter, for those who sort of justified the, the strong reaction by the UN, they would say, if we cannot get this strength of action from the UN right now on Ukraine, we will never be able to get it on any other conflict. So it will have ramifications if we do not act and act decisively. Um, so, so that's the sort of argument that I get back from a lot of people um, when I talk about the sort of double standard that's happening. But I, I think the double standard that's more interesting than how the UN um, how the UN has treated Ukraine, because let's face it, this is nothing new, right? Like there is a hierarchy of what, what constitutes important um, situations and crises and what sort of is, oh my goodness, this is like intolerable and what is not at the UN and there always has been. It's not, it's not as if Ukraine came around and everyone was surprised that it, it, it took more of a limelight. Um, unfortunately, you know, this is a, a deeply flawed organization that needs to be decolonized as a whole. So I think what, what's, what's even more, you know, I think remarkable and needs to be addressed is the double standards of various member states in their reaction to Ukraine versus other conflicts. So countries like the US, like the UK and the EU, um, you know, how, how do we justify all this action at the General Assembly and all the speeches that have been given by the United States about occupation of Ukraine? Well, they would not support at the same time a resolution at the Security Council on the occupation of Palestinian territory. You know, the, the, these are very clear double standards. How can the United States talk about the need for justice and accountability, but still not sign the Rome Statute, um, you know, for, for the ICC? I mean, th these are the sort of double standards that I think really need to be highlighted, um, you know, and, and they're more molecular than, than sort of talking about the entire UN as a whole. And I think that if we can do that, if we can break that down and country by country, we sort of hold up this sort of you know, light essentially to show this double standards, then the UN as a whole has a chance of becoming a fairer place. Because at the end of the day, this isn't some you know, you know, body that just exists on its own. It's made up of 193 member states, countries. And, and the work needs to be done on that level in order for it to be reflected on the multilateral level. Shireen, we could go on for a long time. Unfortunately, this is all the time we have uh, for today. 
what's next for you? How can people who are interested in what you're doing, your work, the work of Amnesty, or your book, uh, what is the best way to, to follow you? I guess you are a prolific Twitter. I am. I am. Hopefully you are all already subscribed to Amnesty International and to all the various country sections that we have, Amnesty UK, Amnesty US. Um, I also have a Twitter account at Shireen T. Um, And there is also on Instagram, if you're interested in buying the book or going to any of the events that I'm speaking at, it's on Instagram, it's at Taking Sides Memoir. Um, and yeah, thank you so much, Nicholas. This has been a wonderful discussion. Shireen, thank you so much for being on the show. It's uh, a fantastic book. Uh, I've been teaching international human rights, um, and I must say this is an absolute recommendation for people who want to understand what it is um, to um, participate to this uh, battle as a human being uh, and not as a uh, as a lawyer or a member of a large bureaucracy. That means so much. Thank you. This is all for today from me, your host, Nicholas Becklin. Um, this was an interview with Sharon Tedros about her book, Taking Sides, a memoir of love, war, and changing the world. You can listen to many more interviews about human rights issues and human rights work on the Human Rights Channel of the New Books Network. If you have any comments, suggestions about the show, please do get in touch. Until next time, bye-bye.